positive relationships are very good for you. They may mean they lower blood pressure and lower cholesterol uh, and cortisol, the stress hormone. Uh, uh, they sustain memory and, and mood and mental agility. Uh, uh, hugs drives up the oxytocin. Uh, laughter drives up the dopamine system, a dopamine system that gives you um, you know, um, energy and focus and motivation. Uh, uh, laughter drives up, uh, boosts the immune system. Uh, and play really is good for our brain growth. So we were built to form pair bonds. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Today's talk is with sexologist and anthropologist Helen Fisher. Uh, she was at Rutgers University. She's also from the Kinsey Institute, the famous uh, sexual research center and the chief science officer for Match.com. She's one of the leading voices in women's sexuality and how we, how we mate and date. Uh, she has innovated the Fisher Temperamental Inventory, which is one of the first neuroscience-based personality quizzes or, or diagnostics based on which system, dopamine, serotonin, uh, testosterone, or estrogen, uh, makes us come alive, patterns how we think, how we fall in love. Uh, and she's also done enormous, like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people sampling every year on what are their natures and relationships to dating and pairing and bonding. So a fascinating conversation. She is incredibly lively. She is officially out of fucks, as they like to say, and really just calling it like she sees it. And wonderfully, after having a marriage that I think she lasted maybe only days in her early 20s, she has ever so recently remarried and is even then reinventing uh, her own experience of what does it mean to be together and to have autonomy and independence. So if you want to hear a incredibly informed, feisty, um, rigorous, uh, scientific, but also humanistic take on this nature of love, lust, attraction, belonging, uh, jump on in. Uh, Helen is an absolute treat to talk to. It's my deep pleasure to get to welcome Dr. Helen Fisher, a fellow at the Kinsey Institute, the senior researcher for Match.com, and one of the leading academic voices on the nature and science of, of relationships and sexuality. So Helen, uh, I'm so excited to get to talk to you and welcome to Homegrown Humans. Thank you, I'm delighted to be with you. Yeah, there's so much, so much that I'm excited to jump into with you and I actually get to feature a good chunk of your work in my next book, Recapture the Rapture. So, so taking a look at the role of neuroscience um, and psychology and sexuality and, and what a kind of curious and potent intersection that is. Um, so before we jump into some of those, you know, sort of fine-grained questions, I'd love to just kind of roll roll back the clock for us a little bit and just describe for us your relatively unlikely journey into this because because um, it's a it's a fairly niche field. Um, it is not one, particularly in the United States, that ha receives lots of funding, approval, accolades, and you also have <clears throat> you're also carrying the torch forward from you know, Masters and Johnson, Kinsey, uh, the, the kind of early and groundbreaking uh, sex, sexual researchers. Um, so how did you get to, how did you get to this? How did you choose this as your topic of study? And, and what has your personal and professional journey uh, been to, to now? 
Well, uh, let's see, very briefly. Uh, first of all, uh, I grew up in a glass house in Connecticut, and my neighbors all had glass houses too. And by the time I was six and seven and eight, I would go through the walk through the woods and go sit on an old stone wall and, and watch my neighbors eat dinner. <laughs> I was always an anthropologist. I've all my life watched people, always wanted to know what was going on, who they were. Um, and I'm also an identical twin. And um, when I was in graduate school, um, I was told that the mind was an empty slate in which environment is great personality, as you know. And I, I knew it wasn't true. Uh, you know, as an identical twin, your whole life, everybody asks you, do you have the same cavities in your teeth? Do you, do you, do you like the same food? Do you have the same friends? Do you think alike? Now, when I was a kid, I didn't know how to answer that. Now I actually do, but uh, I thought it was very strange. I mean, how would I know how anybody else really thinks? But of course, that's been my business for <laughs> over 40 years. So, um, so when I was in graduate school, and I remember even once um, having to write an exam, you know, extolling the, the issue that your childhood made you who you were, I knew it wasn't true. I mean, certainly a good 40 to 60 percent of who you are does come out of your childhood and your experiences. We all know that. But the bottom line is a whole lot of a good 40 to 60 percent does have a genetic, biological and evolutionary uh, uh, explanation. And so I thought to myself when I was writing my PhD dissertation, um, if there's any part of human behavior, any part at all, that would have a genetic and a biological uh, basis, it would be our reproductive strategy. It would be how we mate and reproduce. Because as Darwin would have said, you know, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. I mean, we know about kin selection and other ways of passing your DNA on. But the bottom line is uh, love matters, attachment matters, Sex matters. It matters on a fundamental biological evolutionary um, perspective. And so I really chose to study. Well, my first job was I wanted to figure out why we form pair bonds. I mean, 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young, and people do. So right off the bat, that's different. And then, of course, I wanted to get into divorce. So I looked at uh, divorce in 80 cultures around the world uh, through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations. And then I looked at adultery at 42 cultures, and then it began to occur to me, maybe I could study the brain circuitry of romantic love and attachment. You know, I mean, when you think about it, people live for love, they pine for love, they kill for love, they die for love. It's a very powerful brain uh, artifact, it's a powerful experience. And when you think of all the artifacts about love around the world, I mean, not only are our myths and our legends and our plays and our operas and our ballets and our symphonies, but our therapists and our cards and our letters and our poems and our, you name it, we are deluged with the artifacts of this experience. So it began to occur to me, well, maybe this is a brain system like the fear system or the anger system or other basic brain systems. And if I looked into the brain, uh, I could um, figure that out. So I did a lot of that. I've written a lot of books, as you know. And then um, uh, 15 years ago, Match.com came to me, called me two days before Christmas and asked me to come in two days after Christmas. Well, nothing happens in New York City at Christmas, but I went in and in the middle of the morning, they asked me, 
why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And that got me in, my, on, in the biology of personality and why people will say, well, we have chemistry. We're, why are we naturally drawn to some people rather than others? So that's where I'm at. And, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. And, and, and so also, um, I'm curious because I've heard I've heard a fair number of reports in in the sense that there's been a bit of a a tightening in availability of funding, permissibility of IRBs, the kind that kind of thing, even sort of congressional pressures of you know keyword searches for anything with sexuality or orgasm in the in the research proposals to be kind of called out and seen that this is frivolous or not or not necessary, and and your your move to come under the wings of Match.com, which is obviously you know, a corporate organization, but potentially, I'm curious, did you find more freedom? Did you find more access? I mean, I, I'm imagining you found piles more data. I would imagine that your data sets are meaningfully expanded from getting, getting to be, you know, um, working within a platform like this. But what was your experience of the sort of the private versus the public sphere um, in sexuality research? And what trends have you noticed over the last few decades? Well, I mean, it's it's very interesting. I mean, years ago, you know, when I was put, I was putting, I and my colleagues have now put over 100 people into a brain scanner, studying the brain circuitry of romantic love. And the very first scan, I just, I just paid myself. I mean, I, I, people, you know, gave me the machine to use, so I didn't have to pay for that. And I would give out of my own pocket, and I didn't have a nickel. Uh, $50 to each one of the kids that I would put into the machine because I figured, you know, it's a whole day, you're lying in a long dark hole, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and then um, I wrote an academic, uh, you know, I, I tried to get something from National Science Foundation, I can't remember, the, one of the, you know, a grant to study people who were, had just been rejected in love. And I spent 10 months writing that uh, research proposal. And I got the answer back, and the, literally, this was literally what it said. It said, this is one of the best written proposals we've ever had on a very important uh, um, uh, um, issue, rejection in love, rejected. Mm. And I looked at that, and I said, I am never doing this again. I am never going to depend on that kind of thing again. And I spoke to my brain scanning partner about it. And she said, well, you know, it's just traditional in neurosciences that your first, uh, you know, your first thing is, is rejected. And I said, I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to keep on with my research. There's only so much time on this planet. You know, uh, you know, as Darwin once said, he said, you know, he who doesn't waste, he, well, it's not quite right, but he who wastes even an hour doesn't understand the meaning of life. And that's the way I feel about it. I've always been in a rush. I went and did all this, uh, the brain scanning by myself. Well, certainly with my colleagues, but without any funding. And uh, I made my living writing books and then Match.com calls. What's beautiful about Match is and all of the press i worked with the press for many years um first of all i've never ever once been uh, uh told that i should say a particular thing never once has match told me that they want something said a certain way never once um and um i have been able to um well for the last 10 years i've done something with match called singles in america 
And what this is, is every year um, I, I assemble a, a little team. Uh, Justin Garcia, the director of the Kinsey, is the only other academic, and two people that match, my handler and another. And the four of us, I, I largely create about um, 200 questions and in July and August. And then I, um, we, we discuss this, we send it to the CEO, we decide what we were looking for this year. And um, we oh, collect so, so data. You've been, uh, doing, you've been doing different ones each year, like that continues. To every single year, I do a different major questionnaire with about two hundred questions. Yeah, and um, we do not poll the match members. We do not poll match. This is a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. Census, and so it's real science. We've already published fourteen academic peer-reviewed papers on it, but because it's a different. Uh, every year, we've done it for 10 years, we're going to start doing the, the 11th year any time now. Um, um, uh, I've got data on 50,000 Americans. And as I say, we've got the right number of blacks, whites, Asians, Latino, gay, straight, rural, suburban, urban, every part of the country, uh, uh, every ethnic group, uh, and, uh, and every background. And so it's a deluge of data. I have a deluge in data. I won't live long enough to, to uh, publish on all of this data. What would I have done in academia? Continually say, no, it's a great idea, it's well written, and we're not going to fund it. I don't know, I'm not going to do that with my 20, life. 20 grad students at a time kind of thing, yeah. 20 graduates at a time or 120 in, you know, in a psychology class. And I remember once I was making a speech at, um, oh, the... Um, Oh, it's in Cal yeah, Southern, Southern California. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, was that Aquarium? What's the name of it? Anyway, bottom line is, uh, and some guy in a three-piece suit looked down his nose at me and said, oh, you work with Match. And I said, yeah, uh, my personality data, I've been able to collect data on 14 million people in 40 countries. Now, really, why, who would look that in? Who would not want to do that? <laughs> and um, I work with a company that I like. Unfortunately, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a high estrogen girl, so I, I don't actually like being around people I don't like. And I don't think I would have worked with them if I didn't agree with uh, their principles and what they're doing. I know what they're doing. I know they're honest with what they're doing. And, and they give me a tremendous amount of leeway. And, and they love anthropology. Hmm. They could have hired a psychologist. And um, the fact that I'm an anthropologist and that I'm always looking for um, evolutionary explanations. Uh, for example, here's, a, here's something. This is almost a perfect example. I asked a question one year. Um, you know, when you meet somebody, what are the first things that you notice? And I gave a list of about 20 different things, everything from the car they drove to, uh, you know, their waist to hip ratio, et cetera. And um, the top three things that people notice in a partner, in a potential partner, first is their teeth, their grammar, and their self-composure. And grammar. I began. Wow. Yes. Yeah, and so what is those three things? From a Darwinian perspective, your teeth talk, show your age, your grammar shows your background and your education. And your self-composure shows your psychological stability. All three primary things that our ancestors would have needed to know about somebody before they started a, a long-term partnership. So over and over again, 
I, um, with this 50,000 people, or with the four million, uh, 14 million people who took my questionnaire in 40 countries on, on personality, I'm able to see patterns. And I'm able well, and, to and see... What are, what are you seeing? Like, like, like you've been, you said you've been at this for 15 years and each year you're rebooting it. What are you noticing? I mean, especially as, I mean, and in that time period, I mean, Match was what, one of the relatively early folks to the digital dating game. That's now, that's now become ubiquitous. And it's now, rather than being a sort of embarrassing thing you admit to friends, it's now the norm for how people connect. It used to be, you know, first, first and second social, first, first and second circle social networks, friends of friends, church members, community members, sports teams. Now it's Tinder or, or Match or whatever it would be. Um, the, the increasing hypermobility and even even in 2020 quarantining and fragmentation I just watched I just read something on a new dating site that's actually not a dating site it's the we're both in our 30s and we actually want to have a child and how do we do platonic co-parenting right out of the gate so let's just skip the let's skip the roses and the messy divorce and just get to healthy co-parenting because that's where we are in our life phase so what are some of the most interesting trends that you've noticed in the mating game um, in the last, say, three to five years? What's happening to us? Well, um, of course, um, Jamie, that's a huge question, but uh, I'll pick one that is very important to me. First of all, you know, these are not dating sites. Uh, they're not... And they are introducing sites. That's all they are. That's all they do is introduce you. Once you get meeting the person through video chatting or, or on the internet or in person, you laugh the way you always did, you smile the way you always did, you parade the way you always did, you assess the other person the way you always did. You, it doesn't change who you are and it doesn't change the brain circuitry for romantic love and it doesn't change who you're gonna choose. All it enables you to do is meet people. So these scientists will carry on about how, oh, we're gonna choose entirely different kind of people, rot. It is simply not true. Um, so anyway, of all the things that um, have fascinated me most is something that I, I call slow love. And I wrote an academic paper on that, and I'll write some more on it and in a book too. Um, and what I've noticed, okay, so there's some questions in this. It's called Singles in America. It's, a, it's an, this annual study. You get data on 50,000 50, 50, people, 5,000 every year for 10 years. And... Um, Every single year, there's some questions I ask every year, they're trend questions. And every year I ask, you know, have you had a one-night stand? Uh, and over 50% have said yes. Not necessarily this past year, but uh, during the course of their dating life. Over 50% have had a, a friends with benefits. Over 50% have lived with somebody long-term before they wed. And um, something like 34% uh, have actually had sex before the first date. So people think, oh. How do you do that? How do, you, how do you do that? You, I'll tell you how you do it. You start out at these days, you start as just friends or we're just friends. Then they go into friends with benefits. You learn a lot between the sheets, <clears throat> not just the way somebody makes love, but um, do they have a sense of humor? Uh, are they kind? Uh, can they listen? Uh, uh, et cetera. You learn a lot. So, uh, and so basically today, these kids aren't reckless. They're cautious. They want to get to know every single thing about a person before they tie the knot. Where they used to we used to marry in their early twenties, now we're marrying in our late twenties. What we're really seeing is what I call slow love, this extension of the pre-commitment stage of the partnership. 
starting out as just friends, just friends, moving into friends with benefits, learning a lot about the person, then going out and telling friends and family all about this person, then having the official first date. And I don't know uh, where you live, but I live in New York City, and in New York, a first date could cost you $200. So these people want to go out, spend a huge amount of money, deal with the sex, deal with the money and all that until they have some idea that this might be something that they could really be interested in. So they start out as just friends, then make a lot of them friends with benefits, not all of them, about, about a third. Then they move into um, telling friends and family. Then they move into the official first date. Then they court for a period of time. Often after about four months of the courting, they do what they call the DTR, define the relationship. These people, millennials are serious. I'm telling you, these, I mean, I am so impressed with millennials. They want to know what's going on. They want to know fast. So after about four months, they have the DTR conversation. Where is this headed? <clears throat> and if they agree on that, then they will keep going, live together for a period of time, often a few years and then they marry. And what's important about this trend, and the COVID has only just slowed it down. I'd love to talk about that. But anyway, this slow love, they're marrying later. And all the data shows that the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain together. I've got data on 80 societies through the demographic books of the United Nations back from 1947 to 2011. So it's not a cultural thing. It's a biological thing. The later you wed, the more likely you are to remain together. And, and is that, is that data, first marriage? Is that first marriage or any marriage? Um, I'd have to, it's, probably, it's any marriage. Okay. I got, I, it's funny, it's wonderful that you asked that because the data from the demographic Europe books, um, they only ask about marriage and divorce of every maybe seven or eight years or 10 years. So you've got data in 1947, I think 1953, then all the way up there. And they're just asking three questions. Um, when did you marry? Oh, well, these are divorce questions. Um, how old were you when you married? How long were you married? And how many children did you have during the marriage? And what you see is uh, how long were you married? The peak of divorce is around age 20, probably a little later now, uh, 24 to about 27. So if you're going to marry and then divorce, um, you tend to divorce in your late 20s. Oh, wow. And the later you uh, are, the later you um, get married, the less and less likely you are, are to divorce. That's what the data shows. So, so, so on the notion anyway, of slow love, slow love right? Yeah. It, it sounds and like... It's, um, and, and, go ahead. It's adaptive. It's, a, it's adaptive. Uh-huh. And it, it makes me wonder of, I think I just remember reading a piece not so long ago on Western Europe and Scandinavian countries in particular, where marriage is often actually... There's, there's cohabitation and even parenting, child child rearing and parenting, and that the marriage is actually the sort of, it's more like a 10th anniversary victory lap. You know, that they, they actually <laughs> delay it until they say, no, actually, we, we, are, we have done this, we are doing this, and we commit yeah. to keep doing it. And it's much more yeah. of a midlife affirmation than it was a prerequisite to, you know, at the starting line. Does that, yeah, does that fit in your, very, in your model? Yeah, yes. In fact, I've read that too. Uh, I think it was been largely in Africa, and they want to make sure that the 
that the it's a um, fertile couple. And so they will want to have some of their children first so that the, so, so that they know that this can really last. Um, what's interesting is uh, I had read in some of the Scandinavian countries recently, you know, they've had a very high percentage of people who don't bother to marry at all. They just don't want to do that. They, they are, they're living and they're committed. They're raising their children together. But apparently there's a new swing back into actually wanting to do a legal contract as well. So, but, uh, you know, marriage is everywhere in the world. I, I don't know of a culture where they don't uh, have some form of marriage and some form of divorce. Now, of course, it was very difficult to divorce in our agrarian past because, uh, you know, the upper third of, of 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 people, the rich people, you know, marriage was a was a was a union of, of families and a union of, of property and a union of political and social context, and you had to marry from the same religion. So, you know, marriage. Uh, you know, people married for different reasons then. I mean, you had to marry a girl who was from your same background, the same social class. A uh, uh, man has to have enough money. Um, the uh, uh, you know, and hopefully from the farm next door. And in fact, when I looked at uh, you know, I ask every year. One of the trend questions I ask every year on Singleton America is, "What are you looking for in a partnership? What do you want?" And um, the top five things every single year. The top five things, doesn't matter whether you're black, white, Asian, Latino, any part of the country, anyway. Top thing is they want uh, somebody who respects them, uh, somebody who they can trust and confide in, uh, somebody who makes them laugh, uh, somebody who um, spends enough time with them, and somebody who uh, they find physically attractive. So when I asked the question, I wanted to know, I mean, you know, for a long, the last 10,000 years, a girl really had to marry a guy who who could provide. Uh, and, well, four out uh, of five of those sound like just good friends. It's only the, it was only yeah. the fifth one that had anything to do with physical chemistry. Yeah, I was surprised that it was number five. Every year I'm surprised that it's number five. And we're really looking for a companion. Um, and men, by the way, want a woman with a career, not just a job, but a, a, but a career. Um, I've, I've, so anyway, one of the main things that I found uh, that you asked about was this slow love. Another thing that I found that I, I've always loved to, to say, and I've got the opportunity moment, we don't understand men. We don't understand women either, but we really don't understand men. All of my data every year, men fall in love faster. They fall in love more often. Um, when they do find somebody that they love, they want to tell friends and family sooner. Uh, as you're a neuroscientist, uh, it's probably mate guarding. Uh, and uh, men have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands, or because M meaning they're asymmetrical. Like a, a a husband will overshare with his wife versus the other way around. Yes, because women share their real secrets with their girlfriends. I've always said that to my wife. I'm like, talk to me like you would after three glasses of wine to your best friend from college. Like, lay it on me. You know? She won't do. It. <laughs> and I wouldn't I either. <laughs> That's the time that we complain, for God's sakes. We wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah, she's like, no way would I unload all my juiciest stuff on you. Yeah. Well, so, so I'd, I'd love to kind of put on the anthropologist hat for a second. And you were just describing millennials in particular being quite cautious. The friends with basically the tester, try it before you buy it. Let, let's, let's have friends with benefits. Let's have safe ways to explore sexual chemistry, relational compatibility, all these things. And this notion of what you've been calling slow love. To me, that feels like a quite 
modern, and I could be missing some key deeper truth versus social stories, but like it feels to be a quite modern adaptation where virginity, particularly control of women's sexuality and young women's sexuality, seems to not be playing as strong a role in the mating game, in the push towards early marriage, because obviously if someone has just hit adolescence, they become hormonally drenched. There is this, you know, there's the, there's the, there's the tension and attraction of high school, college, and the idea of we better get married as soon as possible so you can make an honest woman of me, right? That old story, kind of often the marvelous Miss Maisel kind of stuff, right? Versus now where it may, our, our millennials, do, do, you, do you have a sense that sexual activity and openness is now decoupled from social status and, and morality and those kind of things. Is that what's giving people more freedom of choice as to how they architect their romantic arcs? You have a wonderful question. Um, well, first of all, you know, dialing back to the grasslands of Africa, um, they didn't concern themselves with virginity before marriage. I mean, and when you really look at, really look at the hunting and gathering societies, I mean, women were very powerful in most of these cultures, actually in all of them. You know, for millions of years, women commuted to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with 50 or more percent of the evening meal. The double income family was the rule. And women were just as sexually and socially and economically powerful as men. And under those circumstances, uh, women married who they wanted to marry, uh, and they walked out on who they wanted to walk out on. So bottom line is then we began to settle down on the farm. And on the farm, women really lost a great deal of their economic power. power. They could no longer wander off and collect the fruits and vegetables and come home with the evening meal. The men's roles became much more important, uh, not only uh, felling the trees and moving the rocks and plowing the land, but taking the produce off to local markets and coming home with the equivalent of money. And along with that, we see the rise of exactly what you're talking about, the rise of virginity at marriage, the concept that a woman's place is in the home, the concept that the man is the head of the household, and the concept of till death do us part. And I mean, you know, on a farm, how are you going to walk out? I mean, you can't walk out. You can't cut the cow in half and take it out of town. You can't move up out half the wheat field and 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 uh, and you know take it with you. Either walked out empty-handed or you stuck with it. And so, in in um, agrarian cultures around the world, you see um, these beliefs of virginity at marriage, et cetera. So, what we're really seeing today is not something new. What we're seeing is we're moving forward to the kinds of partnerships that we really had a million years ago, where girls were expressing their sexuality very young, using their sexuality as a test uh, to see whether they like you well enough or not. Um, they've, they, and they can do this now. I mean, they, you know, young girls today know how to not get pregnant. They know how to not get diseases, and they don't have to walk the walk of shame. So the bottom line is the pot's off the lid, and the lid is off the pot, and uh, and women can women can uh, express their sexuality. Uh, you know that old thing of you know why 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 buy the cow if you've got the milk for free? It's different. That was a total agrarian line. And now, so now, so wait, so you, you just covered so much ground, right? So, so we've just gone from a hundred thousand years ago through the last 10,000 years, the age of agrarian societies. And there's, and there's tons of conversations, 
theses, counter arguments embedded in that conversation, right? Yuval Harari, for anybody that read Sapiens, he also pinned that kind of the, the, the beginning of our fall into the agrarian era, that we were happier, we were healthier, we were more egalitarian as hunter-gatherers, and it wasn't until the 10,000 years. Um, uh, what's his name? Chris Ryan, famously with Sex at Dawn. I don't agree with him. He didn't do it. I, I mean, I know him and I actually like the man, but uh, he really fiddled with the data. Yes, exactly, exactly. So that's my point. So, so my question is, is, is let's and you know, let's really slow this down because I think it's it's a fascinating conversation that most people skip over and they shape it to be their just so story. You know, like this is the way it was, and then I'm going to make my point about a contemporary issue. So, so, so to your point, I mean, I think um, Jared Diamond actually wrote. I don't know if you read his, but why sex is fun, but it was. I should. I should read some of these things. I really should. I just get so involved in writing my own books. And, yeah, but anyway, no, tell sure. me, I admire him. Well, so, so, I mean, he, he did a very interesting study on basically caloric output and gain from hunting and gathering the male roles versus, or, or the, the hunting versus the gathering, the, nut, the nuts and berries and, you know, horticulture kind of stuff. And bottom line is if you wanted the most consistent caloric um, harvest for your family, you did the women's work. And that the men, it, it was feast or famine. And then there was this series of theories as to why that was the case. And, and basically, you know, there would be the idea that if I came home with the bison, if I came home with the big game, I would gain status, all these kind of things. And there was also the advancing thesis of why a woman might actually choose the reliable, dependable mate, but occasionally sleep with or exchange sexual favors with a successful hunter who was the neighbor kind of thing. And it was sort of this whole, you know, now you get into the bonobo theories of, you know, sexuality is social bonding, glue, social capital, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious as to, because that whole notion of the agra agrarian revolution equals patriarchy, equals oppression of women, equals control of sexuality. Let, let, let's just, I'd just love to kind of take our time through that. So, so you gave us a sort of a, a you know, a, a highway speed drive-by, but let, let, let's take each of those. How, how and why? Because I think those are really important. And again, back to something like Sex at Dawn, right? Which every, every serious evolutionary biologist and anthropologist I know, you know, jokes a little on that, on that book, right? Um, and on the other hand, it took off like gangbusters in popular culture because at least my my assumption is, is because it gave people permission to do what they thought, what they wanted to do right now, which is this advent and explosion of polyamory. So, so walk us through this, walk us through what more egalitarian and distributed, um, and also, I mean, even gender roles, right? If you look at Pueblo Hopi culture, right? I mean, the women are the house builders. They're actually doing a lot of, you know, at least in the Western world, gendered masculine roles, but they, they crush it. And then also their divorces were free and easy. Just put a man's moccasins outside, you know, outside the home. And that meant hit the bricks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm done with you. So, so what do you feel or what, did, what, you know, what's your working hypothesis as to the drivers that degraded feminine agency right, with, with this rise of agrarian societies. How did that happen? Okay, well, well, first of all, um, you're talking to a person that actually feels that um, in agrarian societies, men are equally um, chained to the rules. Now, every single woman who's in a, a uh, arranged marriage is in an arranged marriage with a man, <laughs> and he might not want that marriage any more than she does. So I've often felt that it's not just uh, 
um, you know, uh, patriarchy, you know, coming down on the heads of women, but so it's a sort of societal um, economic demands coming down on the head of both sexes. I mean, it's, you know, if somebody dropped in from Mars and in a, in a farming society and saw what men do every day, they do the dangerous jobs. And, uh, um, you know, many more men die of overwork, I think, around the world, et cetera. So anyway, um, I, I, I maybe may go down in history as one of the few people that defends men <laughs> as well as women. So I don't think that patriarchy was necessarily very good for either sex. Um, and that they were, their behavior was curtailed by both. Um, so, uh, I don't know which part, uh, the one that's sticking in my head is about, I'm, curi I'm curious about the, the I mean, fixity, obviously geographic fixity, access to, you know, work or sustainability close or far from home. You're talking about bringing things home versus being staying at home. You can't cut the cow in half. Those, those kind of things like the accumulation or aggregation of wealth. And then even the, you know, the nominal notion of men to markets and the conversion into, into currencies. I mean, what's the, there's lots of theories. And again, you know, Ryan is, is an example of a popularizer of these, but the notions of, you know, paternity certainty, like I, I need to know whether or not the resources I'm distributing to my woman and my supposed children actually are propagating my gene line. What, what, what's your sense of um, monogamy, serial monogamy, Pro, you know, polyandry, you name it, different relational formats. How did we end up with at least the persistent illusion that some variant of monogamy um, has been a default norm, at least within our culture, if not across the spectrum of anthropological? Okay, so there's two questions here and I'm hanging on to them. Uh, first of all, I mean, generally the environment is what changes culture. I mean, and, uh, you know, by 10,000 years ago, the environment was dramatically changing. And um, you really see uh, more and more people uh, having the ability to um, settle down. I mean, it started off, um, uh, you know, with just coming seasonally to certain places just to fish. And um, and moving seasonally to some other places where the where the animals came piling through, and you know they collected wild plants, this and that, and the seeds dropped off, and then they came back the following year, and there were more seeds growing there, and more of what they needed, and so it was a very very gradual process of of, of turning into an agrarian society, right? But uh, let's talk about something else, um, which is monogamy, as you know, but probably not all the listeners know. Mono means one, and gammy means spouse. One spouse. It does not mean sexual fidelity. It means forming a pair bond with another individual. 97% of mammals do not form a pair bond. Uh, zebras travel in a group of one male and several females. Gorillas travel in a group of one male and several females. Chimpanzees live in a group of many males, many females, and everybody copulates with everybody in some sort of patterns. So the bottom line is that we form a pair bond, which is the right term for monogamy, forming a partnership. Monogamy, I think, evolved by 4.4 million years ago among Artipithecus ramidus. And I've read all this so carefully for so many years. and. 
uh, what you ta- what what anthropologists really do is they look at patterns of sexual dimorphism. Uh, in other words, two different forms. So, for example, male gorillas are much bigger than female gorillas. Uh, and um, one assumes then that you're going to be po- polygamous because the ma- big male is going to have to fight other males and collect a lot of females. Pair binding species or monogamous species, like a lot of birds, um, are very similar in their teeth and their coloration, this and that, um, because they uh, work together as a team. They form a partnership to rear their young. Why do birds do it? They have to. Um, they have to because somebody's got to sit on those eggs. And that individual will starve to death unless they get somebody to feed them. So in the spring, a robin, a male and a female get together. They form a pair bond. They are monogamous. Uh, and uh, together they, they, uh, they breed and raise their babies. However, when you took a, like, take a look at all the birds and all other monogamous species, they are also adulterous. I mean, you can go into the eggs of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, some sort of nest of a songbird and find that not all of those baby chicks are are the babies of the fellow that's feeding them. Uh, So I've long thought that we've evolved what I call a dual human reproductive strategy, a tremendous drive to fall in love, form a partnership, rear our children as a team, and also a tendency to be adulterous, to collect extra partners on the side, have extra children with them in the case of men, in the case of women, get extra um, support for the children that they've already got. And so we selected for a double, a dual human reproductive strategy. Tremendous desire to fall in love, to be jealous of others, protect that partnership, have our babies as a team, and also a, um, a, a as Byron said, a desire for fresh features <laughs> to be a dollar son. So, bottom line is, I also think that we evolved a series of partners of serial monogamy, I call it, or serial pair bond. And I arrived at this because, well, for many ways, but uh, I looked at the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, and everywhere in the world where people can divorce, they do divorce. Divorce is very common. It was very common in hunting and gathering societies. People, anthropologists have suggested that uh, in hunting in our in all of our human history, uh, uh, individuals tended to have two or three husbands or spouses, whatever, during the course of a series of socially uh, uh, visible partnerships and clandestine uh, things on the side. So uh, I think this is a very old tradition. Uh, when you go around, look around the world, just counting heads, the vast majority of men and women are living in a place with only <clears throat> one person at a time, monogamy. Now, 86% of world cultures permit a man to have several wives at the same time, polygyny. Did, you, did you say 86%? 86%. Uh, traditionally, now it may have changed in the last you know 100 years, but traditionally, yes, 86%. But, and this is what anthropologists don't tell you, is that when you look in those wonderful articles on this, when you look in those societies carefully, although the society permits a man to have several wives at once, the vast majority of men don't do it. They can't do it. A woman will not share a man unless he's got a lot of goats, a lot of cows, a lot of fruit trees, a lot of money, a lot of education, a lot of land, a lot of prestige. Uh, we are a jealous animal, and in fact, in um, these polygynous societies, it's not—it's quite common even for uh, co-wives to fight or to to uh, even um, 
uh, try and poison each other's children. So we're not built for that. We're not built to share. Um, and this is one of the reasons well, well, I think. Well, let's just wait one sec. Because so you've just said something fascinating, right? You've said on the one hand, it appears to be the pervasive natural order for serial monogamy with you know, infidelities on the side. And on the other hand, you've said, but we're not wired for it. We're jealous creatures. So how do we, is that just that we're complex and contradictory in our genetic and hormonal imprinting? Are there just competing interests that are at play? And that's why love has consistently been such a battleground or, or does one take precedence over the sure. other? Sure. <clears throat> different things for different people. Some people are adulterous and end up leaving their, their partnership. Other people just lie about it. Other people have a fling and feel terrible and never do it again. I mean, we all handle this differently. But I, and you've come to a very wonderful thing here that I never have an opportunity to say. It seems as if we've got, you know, this tremendous drive for partnership and also a drive for autonomy. And we all work it out in our own way at different times in our life or or um, even at the same time. What's interesting about polyamory, it's just uh, transparent adultery. That's all it is. What these people have done in polyamory is they've decided that they don't want to lie to each other. Uh, they're, in a, they're in a wonderful partnership. They, they like where they are. They don't want to leave it. It's a deep attachment. But they want the rush of intense feelings of romantic love. And so, you know, and those are different brain systems. The brain system for attachment is a different brain system for a brain system for romantic love. And you can feel deep attachment for one person while you feel uh, feelings of intense romantic love for somebody else. So what people who are polyamorous and poly many amory loves, um, they agree. They're totally upfront about it. They agree that that they're going to find some romance on the side, not just sex. That's uh uh, but uh, romance. That's Thank cheesy. You. That's what they That's what they, my parents did in the 70s. That's swinging. We're doing polyamory. It's it's way that's cooler, right. baby. Yeah, that's right. Swinging you do with your partner. You take your partner with you. You, you know, you, you have sex in front of each other with other people and then you go home and laugh about it or whatever. I don't know. I've done it. I don't think I'd be good at that. But uh, um, <clears throat> I wouldn't be good at polyamory either. You stay up all night doing cocaine and listening to the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> I like the Doobie Brothers. Uh, the uh, uh, um, what they don't tell you. What go ahead. Another. Oh, go ahead. You you go. Well, what what the polyamorous people don't tell you is that they spend an inordinate amount of time um, dealing with their feelings. Yeah. I mean, they have a huge number of rules. Okay, you know, no dates on Friday night. You can't ever bring the person in your home. Uh, children won't be involved or whatever. <clears throat> and uh, only this and this time. So they follow the rules. And then they in spend an inordinate amount of time talking about it. I don't know if that magazine is still in, in print. It's called Loving More. They used to really like me, the people in the polyamory community, because I've always said and will continue to say that we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. Sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment. And what they like about that is the fact that I can I'm clearly say and have been able to show that you can lie in bed at night and feel deep attachment for one person, and then swinging into feelings of romantic love for somebody else, and then swinging to the sex drive for somebody you barely even know. So 
what they're all they're doing is being honest about it. So anyway, I did a study with Match because I got this Singles in America study, and I asked one year, you know, what do you think of polyamory, and have you done it? And 69% of Singles in America, there's 5,000 people in this sample, um, had no problem with polyamory, but only 6% had ever done it. It's hard to do. We're not, you know, it's much easier to lie to your partner. I mean, I'm not suggesting it because it, I've looked at adultery in 40 cultures and it's very difficult for everybody. But it's a different thing from polyamory. Polyamory is just, I think, transparent adultery. Or, or yeah, transparent adultery or serial monogamy with slow motion breakups. Okay, that'll you work. Know? It's, it's like, I'd like, to, I'd like to go bang somebody more, and I'm just going to tell you about it. And then the moment that new relationship energy kicks in and the sexual attraction, then it's kind of asymmetrical chemical warfare. Somebody's in a right. steady state pattern versus the new and the, new and the dopamine overloads. <clears throat> and right. as often as not, that person does get left at the altar. Now, there's, a, there's one thing that you've said that I just want to... Nobody gets out alive, Jamie. <laughs> none, of us, none of us get out alive. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a couple of things you've, 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 you've layered in um, a couple of moral judgments and whether it was guilt and cheating or whether it was jealousy. There, there, there was just kind of this thin layer of moral interpretation of these actions. And that obviously, you know, you coming from the anthropological domain, that's obviously it depends on what your culture says about these behaviors and patterns. And there was and so I just want to kind of, you know, slow that down, too, which is in a society where adolescent promiscuity where relationship changes through like what if you know what societies are you aware of either contemporary or historic indigenous where there was the the closest match between the cultural norms aka the super egoic scorecard and our natural biological impulses so there was the minimum of dysfunctional tension between how i ought to be and how i want to be I don't think there is one. Huh. So we just haven't necessarily designed or lit or evolved a culture yet that matches just how we show up? Well, first of all, people are so different. Some people are, can form a partnership for their life. Uh, sex isn't that important to them. Uh, their community is very important, and they just don't go there. There's other people who don't ever marry or or very married briefly because they don't think they'll ever be sexually faithful, and they want that autonomy, etc., um, but I'll, let me tell you a story about about um, polygyny. You know, this is uh, I was traveling in the highlands of New Guinea, and all I, the stories begin like that. By the way, <laughs> nice. thank you. It's a true story. Anyway, it was a really beat up van. I could see this dirt road underneath my feet. I was sitting in the back of the van on an old, uh, uh, a rusty, turned over barrel, and I was standing sitting there with three men, and they did speak some English. One of them had three wives. And I asked him, because it's very common having wives, three wives in, in, in that part of the world. And I asked him, how many wives would you like to have? And there was this long pause. And I thought, is he going to say five? Is he going to say 10? Is he going to say 25? And he looked at me and said, none. And the reason, <laughs> he said, he's, and then the guy next to him chimed in and he said, the reason is, Helen, is that you can never have two wives, because every single t if you have two wives, every single time you're out of town, um, that wife knows where you are, and they get jealous. The bottom line is we are a jealous animal. 
And we've evolved all kind, along with the evolution of pair bonding, I think by 4.4 million years ago, and I'm happy to go into why, um, we evolved a lot of emotional systems to sustain that pair bond. And one of them is jealousy. And we are, as the, as the uh, I guess the Orlando, I think, of, uh, of the outer uh, New Guinea, and of, um, of uh, Australia, the outback of Australia, said, we are a jealous animal. Well, he was right. But we also like our autonomy. We also like some fresh features. And a certain number of people are going to be adulterous on the side. Frankly, I think adultery is going down uh, in America today, largely because we're marrying so much later that, um, you know, and, and we're really getting to know somebody before we wed. And we really have um, had a, already an awful lot of experience all through your 20s. You've got all this experience getting to know who you are, what you want, and get re getting rid of what you don't want. So that by the time you walk down that aisle, what's what singles want today, particularly millennials, they want to know who they got. They want to know they think they can keep who they've got. Uh, and they and they think that they want to know that they've chosen the right person. Now, the other thing is there we can now divorce. I mean, during, oh, let's say, I don't know, even in the 1500s, you'll see a French family and he's got a family and, and he's got a, a, a woman in town who is his, you know, a, um, uh, his adulterous companion with whom he will often have other children. Well, in past centuries, you couldn't divorce. And women didn't have any means of, of production, uh, economic means, if she did divorce. And as a result... You had to stay married forever. So an awful lot of men, and probably women too, because when men are sleeping around, they're probably sleeping around with a woman. Um, uh, uh, you know, you're going to see much more adultery in in agrarian societies where people are stuck together. These yeah, it days, sounds like you're basically advocating for the Southern European model, where men and women <laughs> get to have get to have kid. mistresses and pool boys on the side. Don't ask, don't tell. Everybody understands what's going on, and you maintain the stability of your core family unit. And that way, you you, you that navigates the jealousy factor. It it addresses the novelty factor. It also addresses the pair bonding requirement that you've been advocating goes back four million plus years. Well, I'll advocate that um, Fair Bunny went back 4.4 million years, but I'm definitely not going to advocate for, uh, uh, you know, uh, for any particular, uh, you know, pattern of, of Pear Bunny today, to each his own. I mean, I actually just, I got married a few months ago at my very advanced age. And um, was that, was that your first marriage? Well, I actually was married for um, about four months when I was 23. <laughs> so there you go. So one of the young 20s. You were, you were consistent with your data. Yeah. I didn't want to marry him when I walked down the aisle, but I was so scared of my mother. that Anyway, the bottom line is um, this one I did want to marry. But as I said, I'll marry you, but I'm not moving in. And um, uh, I'm doing something called LAT, living apart together. So I'm now at his house, and it's my house too. But um, I also will keep my own home in, in Manhattan. And... Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and he's very pleased with that. We, we're, we're, we are going to be faithful to each other. That's not a problem at all. We've, I'm, I'm done with all of that. And, um, um, but I like going out with my girlfriends and going to the theater and the opera. And the, I, I like to go out and I like to walk the streets of New York. And he loves to stay home and read and do his thing. So um, what's the beauty of that is that these days we can make all different kinds of partnerships. I mean, I have various friends who 
oh, their husband, who's a writer, lives in the country. They live in Manhattan and they go home for the weekends. I mean, we can have commuter marriages now. We can have polyamory. We can have the, the kind of thing that you just described of having a woman on the side. But I guess there's going to be less and less and less of that because women don't put up with it anymore. And neither do men. If they feel somebody's cheating, then they get out of it or they resolve it instead of just putting up with it. Hmm. So, so f final question then. You, we talked about uh, polygamos. We talked about monogamos. We talked about like the different configurations of union. Um, I'm fascinated as to what, if anything, you see as the relationship with hieros gamos, right? Which was the Greek idea of like the sacred union. So you've done a lot of work on the neurochemistry of lust, love, and attachment, and, and how that shapes our consciousness, and to some extent even our, you know, has correlations with our personality structures and how we embrace the rest of life. So with your temperamental inventory and your personality profiles, what, what is the capacity of sexuality to lead to um, higher or transcendent experiences, the hieros gamma. So regardless of which relational format, we're all still playing with the same evolutionary noms and levers. What is your sense of this profound neurochemical and hormonal cascade that tends to accompany pair bonding, attraction, arousal, and actual mating, um, and the transcendent, the, the, the potential to, you know, the, the realms of what in the West would have been the sort of category of sex magic, in the East it would have been the tantric traditions, etc. but like the, the sort of the pinnacle of what does it mean when we come together? Well, um, I'll let me dial back to the kind of person that I am and just simply say that um, there is a gene in the serotonin system linked with religiosity. Uh, with what they call self-transcendence. And some people have that gene and they are rigorously religious. Other people don't have that gene and I'm one of them. So, um, I mean, I can see the beauty of sexuality, I can, of sex, uh, I can see the, the, the thrill of it, uh, uh, but I don't link it with God and I link it with... Uh, a higher power of any kind. No, we, we, I, can, we can leave the meaning making completely out. I'm thinking la petite mort. I'm thinking about the, the collapse in the default mode network. I'm talking about the kind of homeostatic reboot that can come from that kind of intense peak release. Okay, well, I'd like it if you answered this question, but I'll start and then you finish it up because I think you're looking for something that I'm not quite sure what it is. But, you know, when you have sex with somebody, sex is, sex is very good for you. I mean, first of all, it releases the androgens, including testosterone, so you want to have more sex. Um, it, um, any stimulation of the genitals um, uh, uh, drives up the dopamine system and can help sustain feelings of intense romantic love. And with orgasm, there's a flood of oxytocin linked with feelings of deep attachment. So having sex with somebody that you like can trigger, and often does trigger, all three of these basic brain systems. More of a sex drive, more feelings of intense romantic love, and more feelings of deep attachment. I mean, sex is basically good for you. It also drives up the endorphins um, so that... Uh, um, that uh, the, you get pain relief. The pain threshold goes up by about 10%. Uh, the DHEA, one of the androgens, gives you the glowing skin. Uh, sex um, boosts the immune system, which is good for you. It's good for heart rate, respiration, blood pressure, all of the muscles, all of the genital tissue. It promotes sleep. It brings oxygen to the brain, and it elevates mood. 
in seminal fluid are all kinds of neurochemicals that are really good for mood. So um, I don't know how to go any farther than that. So why that's don't you fantastic. add? Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, that is a beautiful... And so are relationships. I mean, so is a, yeah. you know, a positive relationship. They're very good for you. They may I mean they lower blood pressure and lower cholesterol uh, and cortisol, the stress hormone. Uh, uh, they sustain memory and, and mood and mental agility. Uh, uh, hugs drives up the oxytocin. Uh, laughter drives up the dopamine system, uh, dopamine system that gives you... Um, you know, um, energy and focus and motivation. Uh, uh, laughter drives up, uh, boosts the immune system. Uh, and play really is good for uh, brain growth. So we were built to form pair bonds. Not saying that we're necessarily sexually faithful. Not saying that we're going to sustain them forever. But I do think with this modern trends of slow love, we're going to get to know ourselves before we wed. We're going to marry much later. And it's entirely possible that because we're simply marrying later, we're gonna uh, we're gonna head in towards a few decades of relative family stability. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, Helen, you've <laughs> done you've done an amazing job, kind of highlighting the full spectrum between the sort of the agony, right, of missed relationships, jealousy, disconnection, infidelity, all the way to the ecstasy, right, and literally just the salubrious, life-giving, and crucial effects of us connecting and and this is how we do it right i mean this is we wouldn't be here if we hadn't had this 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 act this practice this set of connections um in, encoded into our impulses and you're now highlighting a way forward where we actually may be stepping into an era of increased choice and increased intentionality and if we can maybe you know manage or, or or decrease the amount of agony and we can increase the amount of ecstasy we might we might find our way uh with a, with a path forward so thank you for all your research thank you for your you know, insatiable curiosity about all of this stuff and and for highlighting a path that's not simply opinion-based but evidence-based and is drawn um, not simply from one discipline but several uh, and really kind of signposting um, ways we can all become more aware of something that we all live uh, but aren't always um, fully in the driver's seat on. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I hope uh, we talk again sometime and I hear more about what you're doing. Absolutely. And, I, and I'd love to send you a, a galley of the book. And if you, if you, you know, I'll highlight the sections for you. And This time I'll do it. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Helen, thank no you problem. so much. Thank you, Ken. And, and, and a huge congratulations on your marriage. That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. The Shoemaker's amazing children. Everybody. The Shoemaker's <laughs> children finally have some shoes. It, that's exactly right. Take care, kid. And thanks again. You're <laughs> This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 
Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.